All right, good evening, everyone. We're going to be together the next 14 weeks on Wednesday nights, and I'm teaching uh, some material. Most of uh, the documents that I'll be working from, I upload to my Google Docs or Google, Google, um, Google, what's it called? There are two of them now, Google Web. But if you if you would like, um, you can go there. No, that's not where I want to go. There it is. Google Drive, that's what it's called. If you want to write that down, just go ahead and take a shorthand. And there's some, unders <laughs> there's, there's some underscores in there, too, that you can't see. So the, the better way to do that is just send me an email. And if you'll send me an email at that right there, rpl6yahoo.com, I will reply with the link. And the documents that are up there now should be um, the bibliography, course handouts, which includes the schedule, the appendices, um, the PowerPoint presentations that I've got developed so far, and research. Um, now, I do have, I did bring some hard copies of the schedule. Does anyone want that that did not get one? They can't get it off the web page because I can run down and make copies, or I'll send Fred down and make copies. <laughs> this is a, a research-intensive uh, undertaking on my part, and so I do have. Um, I thought I had another slide on there. No, I don't. Anyway, there's a lot of research. If you're interested in this, later as we get into the the meat of the quarter. Um, if you're interested in any of the research, uh, most of the journal articles are available and they've already been, already been uploaded and you can download those from the Google uh, webpage. And, uh, and then I'll upload documents as I go through the class, okay? So does everybody have the, everybody has to go back? Oh, you're gonna write down the Google page? There it is. Drive Google com open question mark ID and like I say some of the this is an underscore right here. So but just send me an email, Scott. I'll is this what you've already sent to some of us? Yes, I did send it to the people who I already had your email. And so did you go on there, Fred? Did you have any trouble? No, I'm it? opening it with those four things. Okay. Open them all up. Okay, good. And I've, I've, I was working on it yesterday, and I was working, so I'll be tinkering with it. So, um, you know, each week what I'll try to do, if, if I'm making a master list of the email members who email me, and I'll shoot you out a text or an email probably Tuesday morning or Tuesday afternoon saying, here's where we are, and I've uploaded these documents, so go look at them. Was the, was the schedule supposed to be part of that? Mm-hmm. I did, I've got the... Bibliography, the power, the course handouts, and research. Oh, it's on course handouts. Schedules in the course handouts okay. subfolder. Okay. So here's this is this has been. Uh, uh, I'll just tell you my story. Okay. I was born into a family that was very dysfunctional. Uh, my parents were separated more than they were together the entire time I was growing up. They divorced when I was 13 for the final time, and about half of that, my mom did not live with us. When my mom would, would leave us, my 
dad's sister would come down from Los Angeles. I lived in North San Diego County, and she would uh, indoctrinate us in the good book. And every summer, she would take us up to the San Bernardino Mountains at Big Bear, um, and we would go through a week of uh, you know, <coughs> Bible camp. Well, I was about eight years old, and the preacher was preaching about, you know, if your life is really messed up, you need Jesus. And if you think you need Jesus, we're going to say a prayer, raise your hand. Well, I raised my hand during the prayer, and they took me aside. And the next thing I knew, I was asking Jesus into my heart, and I was saved. Okay, and so I got back home, and I got back to the same old, same old, and things got went from worse, uh, from bad to worse. And when I was 17, I started uh, working construction. I was a senior in high school, and I met a guy named Ruben Cortinas. Well, Ruben Cortinas was married to Vicki Williams. Vicki Williams is our Vicki Hancock. This is a small world, right? Wayne Williams, who now lives here in Colorado Springs, was the preacher, and Al Pickering was doing a uh, youth rally. And Saturday night, I, was, I listened to his preaching on Friday night, all day Saturday. Saturday night, he was preaching a sermon. And he said, if you want, need Jesus in your life, and I needed Jesus worse then than I did you know, seven years earlier. And so I walked the aisle. And I sat down at the front, and they came over, and I filled out that little card. And I said, you know, I need Jesus, and I want to dedicate my life to Jesus, and I want to know more about his kingdom. And the next thing I knew, I was being baptized for the remission of my sins, right, in the Church of Christ. Well, when I went under, when Wayne put me under, my elbows didn't go under the water. And uh, um, Gentry, Paul, no, it wasn't, anyway, one of the deacons saw it, that my elbows were not going to go to heaven. <laughs> but he didn't say anything. And so, you know, I got dressed and we went out and we sang, you know, I have decided to follow Jesus. We went down to the fellowship hall uh, about three quarters of the way through a pimento cheese sandwich. And Mr. Gentry, Deacon Gentry, goes up to Wayne Williams and says, oh, Wayne, guess what? His elbows didn't go under when you dunked him. And boy, it caused a real stir. You know, we had a theological debate there in the fellowship hall. Well, make a long story short, they took me back to the baptistry and got my elbows saved that night. So that was May 13th, uh, 1978. That summer, I met a guy at the, that was going to that church. I had never been to that church before that weekend. Uh, it was the Vista Church of Christ. I met a guy, his name was Jim Allen, and he said, you know, the end of the summer, I'm going back to a preaching school at a church in West Monroe. We said West Monroe. We learned when we got there, you don't say West Monroe. You say West Monroe, right? Monroe. Uh, the Whitesbury Road Church of Christ. And they had started a new program for youth. You fit the bill perfect. Right out of high school, before college, take a year off, study the Bible. I said, I'm down. So I went, got in the car, drove across, you know, Interstate 5 for the first time in my life, 
went east, I went to school back east, you know, wasn't Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, but I got there and the preacher's name was Bill Smith. And he had a really cool way of presenting the gospel. And he, he preached that on Sunday and then a guy named Larry West came into our class and he did a special teaching about what baptism was. And he had these little symbols. Um, I don't know, maybe you've seen them around. They're, you know, it's about Jesus came, he came, he died, he rose, he ascended, he's coming back. And then you reenact that story. And then you draw a little line here across the water in the baptistry. Um, and I said, you know, I didn't know any of that when I walked the aisle. Um, here, here's another diagram of it, if you can see it. This is Larry's. Um, this is the Bible I bought for $10. This used to be a hardback. But, you know, Jesus came. He was buried. He was raised. He ascended. He's coming back. And then how you get in on that story, that's the story of the gospel. And how you get in on that is you're, you're, you know, you go under the water with Jesus. and You're connect, connected with Jesus and that. And I said, I didn't know any of that. And my friend Heil Nas, who, Nas, who was in class with me, he said, well, let's go. And so this was three months later, I got baptized again. So, man, I'm really going to heaven. See, I know three times in three months I was baptized. Um, but, but here's the thing. Uh, we, as Churches of Christ and the Independent Christian Church, seem to be... affirming what appears to be in modern terms a minority position of the meaning and significance of baptism. And I'm here to tell you if you look at the history of Christianity we by no stretch of the imagination are in the minority we are solidly in the majority opinion. This whole idea that we're saved by faith alone is a new innovation in the history of Christianity. And so my, my uh, I don't know what this thing's doing, but it's, it, I think it's not liking me very much. I am trying to persuade, and I have been for about 40 years, to persuade people that we need to not, as some of our more famous uh, preachers have done in recent time, we, we need to not back off of what we're saying about salvation and saving faith and Christian baptism. Um, we just maybe perhaps need to say it a little differently. Um, you know, I, I really think that we're right. I really do. Class is about is, and it's a book I've written that I don't know that it'll ever make the, the light of day, honestly. I have, I have the worst luck with books, okay? I came off the mission field in 2001. One, and all the time I was on the mission field working with Mexican converts, we developed what we called the year of equipping. And it was a, um, 
one-year study for new converts, and it took them through the Bible. And, and the, so I had really honed it. And so when I got back, back then Howard Books was still in uh, existence, and I sent it to all of our publishing houses, and I got, I think there were nine of them, and I got eight rejections, and I got a call from Tom Tigner at 21st Century Christian, and he said, Bob, it's great stuff. It's great stuff. The problem is it's designed, it's target audiences, new converts, and there's no market for that. I got it, Eddie. Yeah, I'm just going to let that sink in. All right? You're dealing with North American churches, new convert. There's no market for that. So if you will rewrite it and make it a 13-week adult Bible class curriculum, we'll publish it. And so I said, okay. And so we called it Kingdom Values, and 21st Century Christian published it. Um, this book um, I sent to... Um, Johnny Howard, who's Alton Howard's son, Howard Books, right, got bought out by Simon Schuster, who's now the, the biblical uh, Christian uh, division of Simon Schuster. And Johnny was, uh, Johnny Howard was, um, worked with him for a while after they bought, bought out Howard Books. And I, I sent it to him, and he wrote back and said, sorry, there's no market for it. Um, nobody's interested in that stuff. Uh, I had a book just like that about a year ago, and nobody really wants to hear about, you know, Christian baptism and all that stuff. So anyway, but it's 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 my it's my work, and so I've, I'm proud of it. Um, okay, so the the book is called Salvation: Rethinking Saving Faith and Christian Baptism. So what is the class about? Well. It's about when a person gets saved. When does that happen? Does it happen when they hear the gospel? Does it happen when they believe the gospel? Does it happen when they uh, repent of their sins? Does it have, you know, blah, blah, blah. Where, when in the process? And then how? How? And, and I think this is where we can learn how to better present ourselves on what exactly we're saying, okay? How is a person saved? Uh, the means and the occasion of God's activity um, in making sinners righteous before God. So this is a little, a little foretaste, uh, a little preview slipped in there. Paul uses this word, and it's a term of art, Righteous. We're going to talk about it later um, tonight. But it, when does God make a person righteous and uh, how does he do that? That's what the class is about. Um, and it's about how this answer got all tangled up. We'll see how it got all tangled up and why the conversation is so difficult to have. Because you're talking past each other. We're going to talk about the development of the conception of sin. What is sin? How does it affect human beings? And how do, how do you get rid of it? See, if you, take, if you take a righteous human being created in the image of God, which is Genesis chapters 1 and 2, correct? And then something taints that human being. They 
fall from that condition, however you want to describe it, to get them back to that condition, what do you have to do? You have to remove whatever it is that tainted them, correct? So if you remove the sin, what do you have? You have righteousness. As righteous as God is righteous. If you remove the sin, right? So that's kind of where we're going. Now, how did that get all tangled up in the history of the church? Um, all right, so here's, here's my thinking. Here's an illustration I want you to think about. Thoughts have or create a trajectory. And then you can document this in any field of study. Somebody comes up with what appears to be a new thought. They begin to, to work on that thought. It can be in science, it can be in humanities, it doesn't matter. And then what happens is that thought creates a trajectory. And those who come later, after this, maybe the originator of the thought has passed away, but he started or she started a trajectory. And you jump into that trajectory and you're, you're already predefined by the parameters of that paradigm. So here's my illustration. Thousands of years, human beings have measured time in different ways, right? And so up until the 1970s, the Swiss owned at least 50% of the world's market on wristwatches. And I realize that's a pocket watch, but I wanted you to see what was the defining characteristic of a Swiss wristwatch? What did you have to do, Steve? I'm thinking money and quality. Okay, but I'm talking about the mechanics of it. Yeah, you wound it. It had gears and springs and wheels and, okay. So 1970, Swiss watchmakers had a 50% world market share. Now, something changed. What changed? Well, here's the timeline. Somebody in about the, just before the turn of the century found out that quartz has this quality, piezoelectric, properties. And if you can learn how to build an oscillator, you can charge the crystal with electricity and then you can, the charge will begin to release on a measurable frequent, uh, time. And so this was the 20s and then in the early 20s they began to produce time signals with these things, with these crystals. And in 26, Bell Telephone Labs built a clock, you know, a big clock, with using a quartz crystal. Now, in the 60s, this thing called a semiconductor came on the scene. And what did it do? It miniaturized everything. And so the technology for using a quartz crystal to measure time much more accurately 
than any mechanical device could do it was now possible. And so everybody was off to the races. Well, not everybody, actually. It was primarily two consortiums. There was a Japanese consortium that was on the hunt, and there was a Swiss consortium that was on the hunt to develop the first quartz crystal wristwatch. The race was on billions of dollars were at stake. Who do you think won? The Japanese. How many say the Japanese? How many say the Swiss? Just one? Just one. Maybe I better change my answer. Well, guess what? In 1967, the world's first quartz wristwatch was revealed in... Can you already see the brand name? The Swiss one. <laughs> but what was the problem? They didn't think it was a big deal. They, 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 they didn't want to develop it. They, they Why? Because it would ruin their business. Why? Because people would be buying those instead of their gears. A lot cheaper than no, it certainly wasn't cheaper. What they had was already perfect. Say it again. What they had was already perfect. What they had, I, I wouldn't say was already perfect. Efficient. It was already what? Efficient. Efficient. There's another word I'm looking for. Well known to whom? The world and more to the Swiss, right? It was in their paradigm. They could not imagine a watch that didn't have springs and wheels and gears. They thought it was a fad. And so they allowed Seiko to have all the technology. And the rest, as they say, is history. And do you know what happened to the economy in Switzerland? Yeah. Why? Because they could not see beyond the trajectory that they were on. They could not imagine it being any different. What's my point? The point is the same thing happens in religion. The church says something different than scripture. A catastrophic social upheaval breaks out. I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, right? The reformers react to the Catholic Church and they lay down. So what was the Catholic Church teaching? They were teaching, you know, ABC is how you are saved. The reformers said, no, it's not ABC, it's XYZ. And they had a counter which is a sinner is saved by his or her faith alone. So for, here's my point, for, for 500 years, we've had this two option scenario. You are either saved according to the Roman Catholics by your works for Christ, category number one, or you're saved by your faith in Christ, that's the Reformers, that's the Protestants. 
Two options. And only two options. That's the paradigm within which we work. And, yeah, exactly. But here's the problem, Jeff, in my opinion. We read James and we say, you're not saved by your faith in Christ alone. And what does the rest of the Protestant world say? Well, then the only other option is you're now Catholics. You're agreeing with the Catholics. You're ref <laughs> you are jettisoning the entire Protestant Reformation. Why? Because the paradigm is you're either this or you're that, and there's no other alternative. And I say there's another alternative. There is another way to look at this. And it makes a whole lot of sense to me, and it's made a whole lot of sense to me for over 40 years. So that's what this class is about. How is a sinner made righteous? By works? Bible never says that, does it? Never. Nowhere. Nowhere does it say we're saved by works. You better read again. Where does it say we're saved by works? Where? Oh, it doesn't say that. Okay. Everybody agree with that? Not <laughs> Say, read it. Somebody read it. James 2, 20 and 21. You foolish person. You do not want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Yes. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? So, we better, we better be careful what we say. Are we saved by faith? Our faith? Does our faith make us righteous? No. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay. Even the demons believe. Yeah. They shudder. Uh, this says deeds and so not works. Right. <laughs> but the words works. Yeah. Yours says works. Read it. Which version are you reading? Uh, Read it. It says, uh, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Okay. I was being smart. I'm sorry? I was being the smarty pants. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, are we saved by faith alone? I mean, that is the battle cry of the Protestant Reformation, correct? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Bible alone, all these alones. Does, does the Bible ever, anywhere say anything about faith alone? James 2.24. Read it. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So, salvation, rethinking saving faith and Christian baptism. I, I, 
I mean, the, the thing, the, the feedback, the pushback I'm getting from the publishers is, we've heard all this before. Well, we still don't have it right, <laughs> so we still need to talk about it, in my opinion. Hey, Bob. Yeah. It's, uh, I think a big problem is we tend to not define faith the way the scripture does. If, uh, going to Hebrews 11, and we all know that is the faith chapter, he gives about 10 definitions of faith, and he always defines faith by the obedience. By faith, Noah built the ark. By faith, Abraham offered Isaac. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, Abraham moved when he was told. So, the Bible, the scripture defines faith as a trusting obedience, uh, which James is talking about when he says works. Faith is not belief only. Biblical faith is an obedient trust, and that's the way Hebrews 11 defines faith. He lists all these deeds, all these acts, but he never calls them works. He calls them faith. And, but every one of those have an action verb. Exactly. So, so faith, it's not by faith alone. There's some action required. You have to move toward God for God to move toward you. There you go. All right. So here's my question for my faith-only friends. You know, my, my family, when they heard, they were so excited when I asked Jesus into my heart when I was eight years old. And they were absolutely appalled when I told them that I had been baptized in a church of Christ when I was 17, and they said, oh, you now believe in, there's three terms, and none of them are nice. Sacramentalism, we're going to cover that later in the class. Water regeneration, have you heard that? Okay. Baptismal regeneration. So you believe there's magic in the water. My question is, okay, if you're saved by faith alone, then what does Christian baptism, where does it fit? What is it? Okay, now this thing's, is it a work? See that? Work by God. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's what they're going to criticize us for, is you're teaching you're saved by works. Baptism in their mind is a work. And we're going to try to get into their thinking how they get to that place. But what's what my comeback to that is, if you look carefully at baptism, who's doing the action? The person being baptized? It is a passive act. It is done to you. You receive baptism. In the, in the physical realm, you receive it, you're held, you're you know, dunked under. And on the spiritual realm, my opinion, it is the occasion when you receive the gift from God. It is an entirely passive act on our part. <coughs> so, uh, is it a commandment to be obeyed after getting saved? This is a popular one. But we're going to look at we're going to look at some passages that is an example to be followed. I mean, Jesus was baptized, so we should be baptized. Is it a good suggestion? Well, we're going to have to do some groundwork. All right, here's our groundwork. What does it mean to be saved? We're going to talk about that. 
What did the early church believe about salvation? When did it happen? What did you have to do? What did sin do to humans? This is going to be an interesting discussion because we're going to talk about original sin, not something we talk about in churches of Christ, not something that we believe in, right? Or do we? Or do we know what we believe? So we'll, we'll hash that out. Uh, what did the early church believe about baptism? I'm talking about post-apostolic period. Done a lot of research on that. Uh, our groundwork. How did the church's view of salvation, sin, and baptism change through the centuries? So we're going to be doing some church history, for those of you who enjoy history. Um, what was the nature of the medieval church? Where was it spiritually, theologically, when Martin Luther came on the scene? What was going on that caused such a violent upheaval? <laughs> So we're, again, we're going to do some work on church history. What did Martin Luther believe? Did Martin, did Martin Luther believe that baptism was non-essential to salvation? How many say yes? <laughs> How many believe that you were, did Martin, Martin Luther taught that baptism was no longer essential to salvation and had no meaning in the Christian doctrine? How many believe that? Martin Luther believed by faith only, and therefore he jettisoned Christian baptism. Now, now Martin Luther, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote extensively Martin Luther, and you're going to be surprised how, how much you agree with Martin Luther's view of Christian baptism. What's the problem? By the time of Martin Luther, what was going on? Who was being baptized? Infants. So there's the problem. The problem is infant baptism, but not his understanding of what happened at baptism. Here you go. What did Martin Luther's successors teach? See, here's, here's going back to my earlier. Martin Luther began a trajectory. And those who came after him built on his logical paradigm. And when they got done, they concluded, guys like Ulrich Zwingli concluded, John Calvin concluded, baptism is no longer necessary. Has nothing to do with salvation. Martin Luther would never in a million years have agreed with that. But his successors did. Because they took his new trajectory and followed it to its logical conclusion. So that's how that works. And we've inherited. And we, we buy into it. And one of the things that I'm going to stress in the coming weeks is we should rethink our buying in to that paradigm. Does a sinner's faith make him or her righteous before God? I assert it does not. It can't. Any more than works can make a sinner righteous. So that's where we're going. Okay, here's what I think will happen. We'll take off the lenses. The confusion will dissipate. Through a fresh study of Scripture, we'll under, uncover a coherent and a comprehensive understanding of what the New Testament teaches about saving faith and Christian baptism. All right? So here's, here's lesson two. Here's 
What does it mean when a person gets saved? That's our first point, first piece of our groundwork. A, a sinner is converted when he or she gets saved. What does that mean precisely? The first thing I want to emphasize is it's not a single punctilier event. It is a process. Yes. And if you, if you isolate one of the points or one of the components of the process and, and overemphasize that one component, you do a disservice to the process. That's where I'm going with this. So here's the process of God addressing a sinful human family. He makes an overture toward the sinner, either through a miracle or a teaching, okay? And you'll see this through the gospel. What happened when Jesus performed a miracle? They were confronted with a new paradigm. This doesn't happen in ordinary life. How am I supposed to interpret this miracle? Well, this boy wasn't really born blind. It's all been a trick, you know. They make decisions, but the point I'm making is God has confronted their re sense of reality from his perspective. And the sinner reacts to the miracle or reacts to the preaching and teaching in one of two ways. There's either unbelief and we go on life as usual, or there's obedient faith, Gary. And if obedient faith is rendered unto God, then God brings about a transformation. And that person is saved. Or that person is given eternal life, to use John's terminology. And in John's theology, eternal life is not something that begins over yonder. It's a gift that is given right now. It's not a duration of life. It is a quality of life into which you are brought by God's grace. Now, Paul uses a different word. Paul uses this word justified. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is, when Paul used this word in Greek, and 1,500 years later, they're trying to translate this Greek word into English, guess what? There is no English equivalent for the word that Paul uses. And so what they did is they borrowed a word from Latin and anglicized it. Justificare in Latin became justification in English. But it was more or less made up. Happens a lot. Um, so here, here's a side note. This is for free. When, when you get to this situation, when you get a word that doesn't, uh, that you're trying to translate into English or into a receptor language, and you don't know how quite to translate it, you have two choices. You can transliterate the word, which means what? You just bring the letters over into the receptor language. That's what they did with the word baptism. You know why? King James was sprinkled. 
King James was commissioning the translation of the, of the Bible from Greek into the, into the King's English. And they got to this word baptizo. And what does it mean? It means immersion. And King James hadn't been immersed. He'd been sprinkled as a baby. And they said, you know what? I kind of, I kind of like my head being connected to my shoulders. So let's just transliterate it. Baptizo. Baptism in English. Is that the meaning of the word? No. The word has no meaning in English. It's a brand new word. We just made it up. Because we don't have the guts to lose our head. Or you can translate it. You can find a word in the receptor language that has a similar meaning to the, to the source language. But what if you don't have one? What if the, there is no equivalent word? Then you try something else. And what they did is they go to, to Latin and they borrow the word justificare, that's how you'd say it in Spanish. But here's what I'm trying to tell you. Here are the words side by side in Greek. This is the word that is used for God. This is God's quality. He is righteous. And this is what he does to us. This is a verb. Now notice, you move the accent, which has nothing to do with the meaning. It just has to do with the, the, the pronunciation. But you change the sigma for an, for an omega, and you now have a verb. So what does the verb mean? Well, if I had been there, okay, if I had been there and they had asked me, Bob, what do you think we should do? I would have said, if to really get the meaning, you should make a verb out of the Greek word righteous. In English, it would be righteousify. Making something righteous. That's what Paul says. Having been righteousified, having been made righteous by God, we now have peace with God. Having been made righteous, as righteous as God himself is righteous, we Christians now have That is the audacity of the gospel. The Holy One of Israel. Be holy as I am holy. Same type of deal. Hagios. And what do we call it in the New Testament? Hagior. How do we translate it into English? Saints. Ah, completely missed the point. You know how it should be tra translated? Holy ones. See, in the Old Testament, it wasn't an imperative. He wasn't saying to Israel, be holy because I'm holy. Be holy because I'm holy. Be holy. I command you to be holy. You can't command a dirty glass of water to become clean. It doesn't have the ability to make itself clean any more than you or I have our 
have the ability to make ourselves clean. No, in the Old Testament, if you go back to the original source of that statement, it is a promise. And I made this comment in Johnny's class the other night. What was God promising his people? I'm the Holy One of Israel. And if you will obey me and submit to me, I will make you holy. As holy as I am. But they decided they didn't want that, didn't they, Johnny? Well, why, why don't they uh, correct this or change it? Because then I'd be out of a job. Oh. <laughs> you paid a lot for this too, aren't you? So how many of you are in Christ tonight? If you're in Christ, God declares, the God who cannot lie declares, you are as holy as he is holy. To move that forward, to use Paul's language, you are as righteous as he himself is righteous. How did you get there? Because you're such a good person? No, because you moved yourself into Christ by obeying the gospel. And God gave it to you as a free gift because of his grace. That's where we're going in this class. Saving faith. Whose faith makes me righteous? Does my faith make me righteous? No. Do my works make me righteous? No. My obedience moves me into Christ. And Christ makes me righteous. Alan? Do we obey the gospel or do we receive the gospel? I think we obey it by reenacting it. We're going to get there. But I mean, the gospel is good news. You don't obey good news. But I think, if, and I'll show you later, or you can come up after, and I'll show you. Paul uses that terminology. You obey the gospel by reenacting the gospel, and that's why I think Christian baptism is so critical for us to reclaim its place in the process. We hear we hear the gospel, we hear the, the story, we believe the story, it, it causes us to turn from the old world that has fallen away from God to the new world that God is creating in Christ, the new Adam. And we submit to a new birth. So we obey it in the sense that we submit to it. But all of the verbs of what happens, God gets the action. You're right. He makes us holy in Christ because of what Christ did. And we're getting a little ahead of ourselves over past time. But Genesis 3, sin entered the human, human condition. Nothing is as it should be. Nothing is righteous. After Christ, all things can be remade. Because of what God has accomplished in Christ. When does he accomplish that? And how does he accomplish that? Is going to be the remainder of our class. Let me lead us in a quick prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for opening your heart to us. And showing us your grace and your goodness. 
thank you for what Christ has done and thank you for the person who taught us how to get in on what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for the waters of baptism. Thank you for what happened at our baptism. Thank you for that it wasn't just washing away of dirt from our skin, but it was washing away of sin from our souls. And that's based on your promise. And that when we came up out of that water, we came up as holy, we came up as righteous, as you are righteous and as you are holy. We never want to take that for granted, God. Help that to astound us every time we think about it. That from your perspective, if we are in Christ tonight, we are as holy as you are holy. We are as righteous as you are righteous. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. Not because of what, who we are, but because of who you are. And so we worship you and we praise you and we, we pledge our allegiance to you forever and ever. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.